0: calling all women. Did you know a birth control pill does not need estrogen to prevent pregnancy? SLIND birth control is over 98% effective and is estrogen-free. So if you're interested in avoiding unnecessary hormones or you have a health reason to steer clear of estrogen, it's time to say goodbye to estrogen and hello to SLIND. Hello to a flexible window to catch up on a missed pill and hello to periods on a schedule. Do not take SLIND if you have kidney problems, reduced adrenal gland function, cervical cancer, or any hormone-sensitive cancer, liver disease, or unexplained vaginal bleeding. If these happen with SLIND, stop and call your doctor. Before taking SLIND, tell your doctor if you may be pregnant or have had blood clots, stroke, heart attack, high potassium in your blood, diabetes, or depression, which can lead to possible serious side effects. Say goodbye to estrogen. And hello to SLIND. Talk to your doctor or visit slind.com.
2: I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host Carol Zernial, and Carol. As always, it is great to see you, and we've got a really neat topic coming up.
3: Well, we do, and I, I'm I'm excited to be here. I cannot believe we are wrapping up another year of Caregiver SOS on air, and I just wanted to to thank all of our listeners, the, the folks who have been on this second year of COVID ride with us. Um, we really appreciate. Uh, all the caregivers who are, are taking the time and taking care of themselves uh, and joining us.
2: And it drove us out of the studio and we adapted through Zoom. Mm-hmm. In fact, it proves to be much easier to do the show without schlepping to the studio. So uh, whether we can go back or not, I vote for Zoom. What do you think?
3: I, it's working well so far, but I miss the view from the from the station. You got a good view up there.
2: Oh, that's true. Well, let's welcome Kitty Isley. Uh, her podcast, Demented, Uh, is fascinating, and we're going to talk about that. She's a veteran NPR producer and editor, and a new season is coming up, and they're rebranding the podcast. It'll be known as 24-7, and we'll find out about that as well. Kitty, as I said, is a veteran NPR producer and editor, an Emmy Award-winning producer of the Civil War series with Ken Burns, a mother works in public broadcasting. In 2018, she moved into her childhood home, And we see her there as we see her on Zoom in suburban Washington, D.C., caring for her dad, longtime journalist Al Isley. She spent three years caring for him until he passed away in late June 2021, just a few months ago. While living with him, Kitty kept audio diaries of her own challenges of becoming a parent to her parent. The experience was challenging, lonely, bewildering and sad, but it was also a choice and an act of love on her part working with her beloved dad, and we'll talk about that as well. Kitty, honestly, thanks for joining us on Caregiver SOS On Air.
4: I'm so glad to join you, and thanks for having me.
2: So how does it feel for you to be on the other side of the camera, so to speak? You spent a lot of time producing, writing, editing, and and now you're the focus uh, because of the work you did with your dad. Is this difficult for you to talk about?
4: In fact, it's probably difficult to get me to stop talking about it. And even though my dad passed in late June, a day after his 85th birthday, which was kind of perfect, um, I have it has not left me. I feel almost possessed by this experience, and and wanting to educate and include people, and make the rest of the country recognize how powerful it is that we have a generation of people who are going to live longer, need more of our care, and that we can do that better. And we have to do it better. So I feel like I'm really still sorting through what my family went through. And even as I read and learn, I, it's helping me understand what just what we just experienced. And I'm really hoping to bring those voices out just as you're doing to make people aware that this is part of American life right now. It's going just to just become larger.
2: I thought it was pretty neat when I uh, read your background uh, and there's a Texas-San Antonio connection to your work Texas Public Radio and the University of Texas Health Science Center and the Glenn Biggs Institute for Alzheimer's and Neurodegenerative Diseases helped underwrite the five-part podcast documenting your work and discoveries with your dad.
4: And I'm really grateful to them. In fact, I've been kind of, because I'm a radio producer and I've done essays, you know, in print and on the radio, I'm not, it's very normal to me to kind of write as if I'm speaking even if i write a script for a host to amp, you know like you're doing to interview you write it for the voice so to me it was just kind of talking into my phone late at night or oh and literally not using a tape recorder just using my phone sometimes running it when i was helping my dad do any number of things sit down in his chair or get his dinner organized or flip open the pill containers so that i could dose out the pills every week which were you know maybe 15 pills 15 different things multiple times a day um, and making sure he got them at the right time and the correct dosage, Um, things like that, that I might just tape record. I was a little, I was a little, I was a lot sensitive to not wanting to present him in a way that emphasized his um, weaknesses. So there's one episode in which I had recorded a conversation with him about three years ago about how he'd want to be cared for. And about dying, which is a strange thing to talk about. But we had been through many emergencies and many false starts at hospitals and in ambulances. And I wanted to know from him how he wanted to be cared for. So in that conversation, he was very cogent, lucid, conversational, a longtime journalist, comfortable with words, a deep thinker. Later on, his conversations became much more abbreviated and were usually just a few words in answer to something mentally, he was all there, but he wasn't able to necessarily initiate conversations. So I didn't want to broadcast that very much. And I sort of in essence turned the camera on myself and I wanted to focus it on the caregivers because that's what I felt safe doing. I could talk about my own experience and frustrations and insecurities and um, difficulty with this. And I hope without making him look, small because he and I had an amazing relationship and, and I'm just really grateful I could do that.
3: Well, I think that, you know, what you just articulated, uh, walking that line between uh, being a caregiver, but not losing sight of who the person is that you're caring for which sometimes that's that's what you know can bring some guilt and can bring you know a, an element to that caregiving relationship that none of us really want and we don't realize that's what we're slipping into and it's hard to hang on especially with dementia it's hard to hang on to the person that they've always been
2: let me jump in for a moment and let folks know who may have just joined us you're listening to caregiver SOS on air I'm Ron Aaron along with our co-host Carol Zernio, and we're talking with Kitty Isley. We're talking about her podcast series and her work on behalf of her dad, who was struggling with dementia, and what she got out of it, and how she recaptured all of that in her series, soon to be rebranded as Twenty Four Seven, a podcast about caregiving. And Kitty, back to you.
4: Um, one thing I was going to say is that with my father, he had the presenting problem was uh, was heart failure, and over the time he had this. The way it was treated and medicated, I don't think was maybe sufficient. And he lost a lot of memory and the, the dementia was like a secondary effect. So even though what initially we were trying to help him with were medical and disease care, where he was hospitalized at length or had to go to a rehab center and regain balance or strength, um, the dementia part started to take the front seat. And that's when it became clear that his ability to care for himself wasn't enough. and not to make myself look so virtuous, at the time I moved in with him, he had, uh, my sister and my request, stayed in an assisted living home in our town for the winter, after some really problematic, difficult times. And he wanted to come home. And the diagnosis at the time, it didn't look like he had a lot more than maybe six months left. And I was reading a lot about how to to help somebody at the end of life. And I, I felt so powerfully internally, that if he wanted to be home, I wanted to make that happen. In part, because as I looked at it, he'd lost my mom just a few years before. This is a house he'd lived in for 50 years. And all of a sudden, he's being asked to move into basically a dorm with a cafeteria, eat meals with strangers, live in a much smaller space, and leave everything he's known at the moment when he is least kind of resilient to handle those changes. So to me, it, As good as that care was, I understood at a gut level how disruptive and confusing that can be. So my hope was that I could do something I'm never going to be able to do again, which was be with him for those six months and kind of ease it out. And to our good fortune, he went for another three and a half years. But as somebody progresses in that time, the complexity of care grows the needs they have at, you know, for my father's last six months after some other medical emergencies, he wasn't able to walk or stand. And this was during COVID. So we had a caregiver, a, a, you know, 40 hours a week coming in and between us, she and I were lifting him and moving him, wow. helping him to the bathroom or to the, in our case, his wheelchair wouldn't fit between the bathroom doors. I think that's common in older houses. Um Getting him bathed or dressed or in and out of a car. If he needed a doctor's appointment, that wasn't like my dad at all. He was a minor league baseball pitcher for four years. He was a very conditioned athlete. And so he, he took it with great grace that he needed this help, but it really tanked us. And I say to people when they talk about why is this so much different from childcare? Anybody can lift a 10, 15 pound toddler. But when you're helping an elder, they're usually 150 pounds, 180 pounds. It's a very different mechanical exercise, and a lot of caregivers, especially paid caregivers, get injured this way. Not to say nothing of safety for the person that you're helping move around. So um, that was a real discovery for me. Well, did you
3: with the COVID? Were you you made the decision to come home before COVID hit? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And so were you looking back at that? Were you glad that he was not in a facility um, with everything that was going on with the COVID? Did that kind of reinforce that decision?
4: I don't think I felt that it was facility or not. I was glad he was home because as safe as the facilities were in this area for, for some part of it, it was the isolation. And many of my friends went through this with their parents, often at a distance. They couldn't even, you know, there weren't enough staff to help them Zoom right yeah, I, mean, um, I had friends who lost two parents and were in institutions same weekend um oh. i never even told my dad that they were his friends mm. so yes i was glad he was home and i was amazingly grateful to our caregiver because she would do things i didn't even think of like show up at costco at 6:30 in the morning in her scrubs and get an extra pack of ensure or depends or things we needed to have when we had, you know, possible shortages of personal goods, and those are crisis things. You can't get by without depends or continence care, um, and she took care of him as if he were her family. But we were really fortunate that way. Yeah, that's how true. did you find her? You know, um, I had worked some years ago when my mom was sick with a family friend who was a geriatric care manager, and that woman's husband had Parkinson's. And she had hired this woman and trained her. The care manager was herself a nurse and hired a woman that she could have become her husband's caregiver, partner. And she'd helped him over a period of 10 years. And when he passed, it was about six months before my dad decided he wanted to come home. And our friend and former neighbor said, you know, you might just try our caregiver and see how she gets along with your dad. Wow. Which is amazing because she was trained in how to lift someone, how to make sure he was getting his meals in the right amounts, the proper time, with adequate liquids, not too much sugar. Really attentive to details I wasn't aware of.
2: Stay with us. We're going to uh, do a little business, come right back to you. If you've just joined us, this is Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host Carol Zerniel. And we're hearing from Kitty Isley talking about her experience caring for her dad. You're listening to Caregiver SOS On Air. We're so glad you're sticking with us right here on Caregiver SOS on air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host Carol Zorniel, talking with Kitty Isley. Kitty's an NPR producer and editor and has a podcast series, one dealing with her experience caring for her father, who had dementia and soon to be renamed as 24 seven, a podcast about caregiving. And Kitty, getting back to your story, you mentioned to us off the air, you discovered something about language that was pretty interesting.
4: I'd heard this from other people. And my dad was you know, born in this country, native English speaker, but from other friends of mine that I heard about talked about a problem when parents were immigrants to this country or were bilingual and raised predominantly in another language. And late in life with cognitive problems reverted to that language of childhood. And that meant that caregivers, in many cases, might not understand what they're doing or what they're saying. A family member might, but an outside professional paid caregiver or an institution might not know that. So they made very clear to me, like having cultural competency, having a wide range of people working in caregiving, being alert to family backgrounds and traditions, can help you get cut through what looks and presents as kind of complicated behavior or confusion and may just be a language mix up in the brain. Well, and that,
3: I think the cultural competence is something that, and, you know, it can also be generational, right? Different kinds of families. And, and when I think about my great grandparents and my grandparents and my own parents and myself, there, there's a lot of difference in the way we handle family or we take care of business. Uh, and sometimes those expectations can you know you need to take in
4: those into account as well? Very much. And some of the folks we're going to be speaking to, I think, it's in this season, um, Mexican parents, American raised daughters. And in their case, they've told us about the expectation that the daughters will do the caregiving and it will be in the family home. Understandably, that might be a long time pattern for families. In my family, I look back on great grandparents and I realize they had lots more kids. So there were just more people to share the responsibility and an elder might move into somebody's front parlor, but everyone lived in the same neighborhood or the same town. So you just had more hands. And at that point, there probably weren't these institutions. But um, I think we are we don't have a pattern for this. And right. I would say what I realized is we're living much longer, almost almost double our life expectancy in 100 years, from 100 years ago. We're living with fewer children for the most part more complicated conditions later in life, and usually or often at a distance from family members. And I don't think that's happened before in human history. So it's not surprising that we're having a very complicated moment trying to know, more than complicated, it can often feel like a crisis when somebody has a fall, somebody is in a hospital and clearly care is gonna be needed afterward and you don't necessarily live in the same place. And you can't drop a job and move across the country. And that conversation, I, I really want that to be front and center for people. I also will say in my tradition politically, in my upbringing around Washington, the political people who were here during the LBJ administration, Texan, um, Humphrey was his vice president. And my dad was from Minnesota and came to Washington to cover Hubert Humphrey back in the 60s. And he had a a saying about the moral test of a society is how we care for people in the dawn of life and in the sunset of life. And I think that's basic to being a society. Can we, and and how can we better care for people? And if we're not doing that, why are we governing together? I do think this is going to need to be, have more support and more government support, not to say that that's not our responsibility to care for ourselves but I think the the length of life and the complexity of condition with which people age is needs better help, and right. we all need that.
3: Yeah, and it's and it's important at this time. I get excited that there are conversations in Washington about caregiving. That's news yes. that mm-hmm. has happened before, and so we do have a moment. There's a possibility of greater uh, government intervention and recognition that caregivers, family caregivers, families. We can't do this alone. alone. It's an unrealistic expectation. We are not all medical experts. We are smaller families. You were you were talking. We were talking about generational. My great grandparents on both sides had one daughter who was the spinster daughter exactly. who didn't get married, who took care of them in their old age. We don't have any extra daughters running around uh, that we want to designate.
4: Uh, I used to joke about that. Like I needed some, there was a TV show about Mormon families. And I said, I need some sister wives. I only have (laughs) one sister. And most of my extended family is halfway across the country. My immediate nuclear family are the only people out here in Washington. And it is exactly that our families are not big enough or built to, especially with two income couples and needing to at least have more than one person in a workforce. We can do this better.
2: How did you divide the division of labor between you and your sister?
4: you know my not married talk about the unmarried daughter. Um, I was also doing a lot of project work at that time so my schedule was a lot more flexible. My sister was kind of in a high powered job with two young kids traveling a lot, even though she also lives in the same area. it was excuse me very clear I had a better flexibility and for a long period, I was working at night at NPR so when my parents both started showing, problems. I was often the person who would get them to the doctor or take them to tests or physical therapy because I had time during the day. And so I think I was a lot more aware of the conditions that they were developing. It just was really apparent to me. Maybe because I'd had that daytime and been enlisted to kind of like help somebody get to this doctor in with a walker or a wheelchair or whatever it was.
2: I'm telling us for folks who want to listen uh, to your series on the the demented podcast, how do they get it and, and preview it for us? What will they hear?
4: Sure. I kind of made five small episodes that are essentially my conversations with people as I sought advice. And this dates back three and four years where after a big crisis hospitalization, I was at sea. And I just thought, I can't, I don't even know what I'm supposed to ask. So I started conversing with people. Um, How did you care for a loved one with a long-term chronic condition I had in a hospital situation? I had to learn to give my dad a shave. I'd never done something like that. How, how would I know how? So I interviewed somebody who came up with a very specific razor for Gillette that made that a lot easier. Well, how did they come up with that idea? Um, a friend who is a hospice chaplain about how to talk about dying and if I should, Um, those are short conversations, and I want to start by saying they're at Texas Public Radio. And if any listener goes to TPR, T for Texas, PR.org slash the word demented, they'll find those five episodes. They can also find them on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get podcasts. But if you're a person who's just in front of your laptop, you want a quick hit, you can just go to Texas Public Radio's website, TPR.org slash demented. And as I mentioned, we're going to kind of redevelop that name to to focus more widely on other caregivers' experiences and not just my family's.
2: As you think about uh, the work that you ended up doing uh, on those podcasts and, and caring for your dad, what did you learn about yourself as a result of all that?
4: I have to be honest, I think I was in quite a deep depression for a while while I was doing this, and I talked to people and read a lot about it, and they talked about what they called anticipatory grief. You're watching someone really depart and over time lose many faculties, even as he, my dad was a truly cheerful temperament and an optimist and just loved to be here. I had to reckon with the fact that I couldn't control this and I couldn't fix it. And I think even in subconsciously, you think, well, if I just do everything right for this person, they'll just stay at this level and it won't be bad. And in fact, things are uneven and, you know, accidents happen, emergencies happen. Um, You can't do, there's not a right, there's not a right way. I also think I, it was so demanding at such a deep level that um, I'm sort of phobic about ever having to do it again. And that maybe isn't the right lesson. I think the right lesson is maybe I can enlist some more help and maybe I bit off more than I could chew. But when COVID hit, we didn't have any options, as most families didn't. And I was grateful that he was safe, although he was very lonely and isolated. And I felt like I spent a lot of time trying to be include people that knew us safely, that they could try to Zoom with him, although that was a little confusing for him, or you know, maybe meet outside on the patio in the outdoors when it was nice weather and come for lunch or play Scrabble. That was his big pastime. Um, make sure that people checked in and made phone calls to him on important days anniversaries or birthdays or things like that. So I felt like I really tried to keep his spirits up and I didn't recognize that sometimes you just can't do that. You can do your best, but it, it makes sense that somebody might not feel totally happy while this is going on. And I had to sort of respect that and do what I could to provide a, you know, provide some moments of joy and fun and, and familiarity, but also like, not try to fake this this was a hardship for him too and he handled it beautifully and gracefully but i think it was a it took him a while to realize that this was not going to get better
2: in the small world category i knew your dad no i worked, at, I worked on capitol hill i was a press secretary to a congressman and i uh, had a chance from time to time to meet him and talk with him he was an incredibly good reporter
4: Thank you. God, that just that fills my heart. And he was such a nice guy. And for yes. listeners down in Texas, like Washington, D.C. can be a small place. Capitol Hill is a very populated small place. Right. And he came here in 1965. And he's been kind of in and out of Washington journalism for many years since. And one of the things that was so touching was that young people he hired when he was editing a political newspaper, those people came even as he got into worse condition, they came like clockwork. They brought him his favorite deli sandwiches. They brought ice cream cakes. They came and played Scrabble. They'd come for a barbecue. That's my lesson. Have multi-generational friends because that sure kept his spirits up and they weren't as maybe upset to watch him decline in the same way his peers may have felt uncomfortable seeing their friend become very different. It's so a good what a end treat. way to
2: He was a really cool guy. And uh, I thank you for that. We need to get you back to talk about 24-7, the new podcast series. I thank you so much, Kitty Isley, for joining us. And to Carol Zernial. I'm Ron Aaron. Talk to you again soon on Caregiver SOS on air.
0: Calling all women. Did you know a birth control pill does not need estrogen to prevent pregnancy? SLIND birth control is over 98% effective and is estrogen-free. So if you're interested in avoiding unnecessary hormones or you have a health reason to steer clear of estrogen, it's time to say goodbye to estrogen and hello to SLIND. Hello to a flexible window to catch up on a missed pill and hello to periods on a schedule. Do not take SLIND if you have kidney problems, reduced adrenal gland function, cervical cancer, or any hormone sensitive cancer, liver disease, or unexplained vaginal bleeding. If these happen with SLIND, stop and call your doctor. Before taking SLIND, tell your doctor if you may be pregnant or have had blood clots, stroke, heart attack, high potassium in your blood, diabetes, or depression, which can lead to possible serious side effects. Say goodbye to estrogen and hello to SLIND. Talk to your doctor or visit SLIND.com.